Hello, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Azra Raza, who is the Chan Soon Shung Professor of Medicine and Director of the MDS Center at Columbia University. She's considered an international authority on pre-leukemia and acute leukemia and started collecting blood and marrow samples on her patients in 1984. Her tissue bank is the largest and oldest in the country and now has over 60,000 samples. Dr. Raza has also published her research in over 300 peer-reviewed manuscripts in publications ranging from Nature to the New England Journal of Medicine. She is a member of the Founder Group, designing breakthrough developments in science and technology with President Bill Clinton, and met with the then-Vice President Joe Biden to discuss the Cancer Moonshot Initiative at his residence in 2015. She is also the co-editor of the highly acclaimed website Three Quirks Daily, started by her brother Saeed Abbas Raza. She is a sought-after speaker in scientific circles and the recipient of numerous awards, including the Hope Award and Cancer Research, which she received in 2012 with the Nobel Laureate Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn. She has also done a TED Talk in 2015 entitled, Why Curing Cancer is So Hard. Most recently, she is the author of The First Cell and The Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last, published by Basic Books in 2019. This is a book I cannot recommend enough to everyone. On this podcast, we discuss her book, The First Cell, Current Cancer Treatment, Advances in Cancer Technology, The High Cost of Ineffective Cancer Drugs, What It's Like Being an Oncologist, Her Love for Fiction and Reading, and many other topics. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I enjoyed speaking with her. And now, without further ado, here is Dr. Azra Raza. Hi, Dr. Raza. Welcome to the Inquiring Minds podcast. So to start off, do you mind introducing yourself, telling the audience about yourself? What do you do? And what are some of your goals that you hope to achieve in this wonderful book, The First Cell, right here? Thank you very much, Stanley, for having me on this uh, podcast. Um, I'm really honored to be on it and uh, uh, look forward to certainly... uh, communicating with your um, excellent audience as well. So my name, as you said, Azra Raza, and I am the Chan Stone Shong Professor uh, of Medicine at Columbia University. I am also the director of the MDS program, and MDS stands for myelodysplastic syndromes, which is a kind of Mm pre-leukemia. Uh, so for a long time, I, a long time ago, I started studying and treating patients with acute myeloid leukemia. But before uh, too long, I realized the disease is too deadly. And in my lifetime, we will not have a cure for it. The only possible good news that comes with the diagnosis of cancer is, of course, that it's, di- it's found early and we can take care of it. So in other words, cancer does not kill, it's the delay in treatment that kills. And that's the point I'm trying to make with the book, The First Cell, saying that if we need to detect early, how early does early mean? Is it stage one 
or is it even earlier than stage one? Can we go all the way back to the first cell and even prevent it from becoming the monstrous cancer that kills? Right. And um, so what what led you to want to become a doctor and then later, obviously, an oncologist? That takes me back a long way. <laughs> <laughs> Um, since I was little, I have been interested in science. I've been curious about things and uh, started to read a lot. And uh, um, as I was growing up, I realized that uh, the only way to do any kind of science in Pakistan where I was is to enter medical school because we didn't have graduate um, science studies the way I wanted to do molecular biology and genetics, etc. So... I joined uh, medical school and that is where my curiosity changed to wonder. Curiosity means asking questions and then finding explanations for things. And wonder is when you think you know something and suddenly everything is turned on its head. That happened when I began to see patients. And while cancer had been an intellectual um, intellectually stimulating, gripping thing for me growing up and going to medical school, seeing patients made it also into an emotional challenge. And I realized that from that moment on, that uh, my plans for going to the West and uh, joining some PhD program to do molecular genetics um, would not help me unless I was directing everything to try and reduce the suffering of patients. So, so to answer your question, why did I become an oncologist right from the beginning? I was interested in the idea of how a normal cell can go so awry and start behaving in such a malevolent, malignant fashion that it ends up killing its own host and killing itself. But that intellectual combined with the emotional challenge is what I have been completely ravished by uh, trying to work all these years. And so, so before you obviously became a uh, doctor, who are some of the people in your field or maybe people outside of your field that you looked up to and you thought if, you know, that you wanted to emulate in some way? Well, first of all, I was um, uh, enamored by two great thinkers, Darwin and Freud. <laughs> by the time I was 15, um, I think I was one of the first, uh, I mean, one of the youngest people who was reading up on all these things back home. Um, I remember uh, the interpretation of dreams by Freud was given to me by my brother when I was in like eighth grade. <laughs> and uh, similarly, Origin of Species, I read very early on. So um, I think those two um, great scientists influenced me. And then since I was four years old, I was really into ants. I would be following them. And then growing up, I started reading more and more about these social organizations of ant colonies. And so one of my heroes was uh, Ed Wilson, who was at Harvard. He was the head of the comparative zoology mm. there. And um, Dr. Wilson is, of course, known as the Ant-Man. He has won so many awards, including a Pulitzer for his book. I have all his books there. <laughs> um, and uh, Dr. Wilson was a great influence on me. 
the idea is that in science, uh, if you really want to pursue um, science, then you have to be, it's like I define it, uh, Stanley, as a, as a marriage. You must never marry someone you can live with. <laughs> Only marry someone you can't live without. Ah, uh, you see, there's a big beautifully difference. put. <laughs> <laughs> there's a big difference in the two, and the same way, science and medicine demand so much of you if you want to do justice to it. Right. But the only reason you should enter it is because you can't do without it. Mm -hmm. And these are the people who influenced my thinking into realizing all these things that I have to be prepared to give it my all, but not as if I'm making some sacrifice. It should be because this is that that is more fun than fun for me. Right. And I think uh, so before we obviously talk about some of the more painful parts of the book, which uh, I have to say, like when reading the book. I felt pretty much every emotion you could possibly feel when reading a book. Uh, it was uh, anger at parts, frustration. Uh, I there are definitely tear jerkers in there. So so um, personally, my 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 grandmother had a pancreatic cancer, and she she sadly passed away when I was uh, ten or eleven years old, and. I remember just because uh, I'm not I, I didn't go into medicine or anything like that, but I was always curious as to the fact that like my grandma never showed her pain over the two years that she lived with the, the with the diagnosis. And, you know, obviously the slash cut burn method was definitely, you know, something you talk about in the book and, and it was done on her. But there are a few books that I read since that have changed my perspective and made me think about, wow, how much pain she was probably experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. There is obviously the, the book I first read about cancer was uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee's book, uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, which was, it was more scientific and it was beautifully written. And there are some personal stories in there, but um, then the other one, I don't know, you probably read it, but it's uh, When Breath Becomes Air. It was a it was a memoir, and that was the first time where I realized, wow, that the, the people live with such immense amount of pain, and I couldn't even uh, imagine. And the third book was obviously uh, yours because uh, there are multiple chapters where I just it's just so hard to imagine people and how 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 much pain people can survive and and and, and thrive actually at times. But <laughs> on a more positive note for now, um, when reading your book, one thing I noticed is you mention you have a lot of poems and, and references to fiction and stuff like that. When when did you start to when did you fall in love with reading and what do you what do you love to read on a day to day basis? Yeah, thanks, uh, Stanley, first for the summary of the book. And I'm so sorry to hear about your grandmother. But I can imagine now, in retrospect, you are imagining all the things that brave women went through, but was so stoic about it. Yeah. And that's something so noble to see in patients that they don't want to become a burden or a source of anguish or suffering to those they love. Because if she expressed her suffering, everyone around her would feel the pain. And so this is... Uh, 
this is the kind of thing which uh, which is so beautiful about the human spirit and some of us are so lucky to see this on a daily basis i feel privileged when i'm walking people through some of these painful journeys and i see them responding like your what you describe for your grandmother and i can see she produced a very sensitive grandson because you certainly lived through some of the pain and anguish of my patients um i think uh, the important things to remember about whenever we are dealing with patients is that um there are many ups and downs i mean you you mentioned some great books just now siddharth mukherjee and i of course worked together mm-hmm. and his book is one of the most beautifully written history and it is so complete in its uh, synthesis of things also it's not just beautiful writing it's the content is so good also and yet it's a completely different book than mine uh because uh Siddharth Mukherjee has written how we started from and and he did something very clever in the book he took the persian queen um atossa who lived 550 years bc she was the wife of darius the daughter of cyrus the great the persian king and she first noticed a lump in her breast um 550 bc mm-hmm. and she tried to ignore it tried to cover it with sheets but it kept growing so eventually she got her greek slave to take out his sword and slash her breast and she survives so this is the first really recorded history historic case of a mastectomy and what sid mukherjee did is he has taken a tosser from 550 bc 2500 years ago and imagine what it would be like if she was living a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or 100 years ago or today and at each time it comes to the same thing slashing the breast that's the kind of thing that uh, that is really quite shocking to realize so he has described the history whereas uh, i have looked at it in a very critical way at everything we are doing in cancer and tried to point out uh, why we must look at whatever we do in cancer through the prism of human suffering mm-hmm. so tell me again what was the, uh, the specific question you wanted to ask about this well that that was that was part of the question but uh again i i mentioned the fact that um you have a lot of literary mentions in the book and and oh. and uh just out of curiosity when you f- wanted to know when you fell in love with literature and and why you had so much uh so many fiction references yeah. in the book yes that's that's exactly the the right question to ask well uh, you know when i was growing up there was no television of course uh, in pakistan at least um and so in the early 60s and um so most of the time uh, the past times were of course we played all afternoon but in the evenings we would my parents were uh, and i come from an oral tradition so that uh, reciting and uh, committing poetry to memory is like second nature all children were supposed to memorize thousands of verses of grand poetic traditions 
But um, also reading was a very important part of entertainment, really. And reading fiction um, started very early for me, reading stories as a kid. And then by the time I was eight or nine, I was reading Dickens and Hardy and, um, you know, uh, Thackeray. By the time I was a teenager, I was reading all the great French and uh, Victor Hugo. I was reading, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and all the Russians. So uh, great books were, uh, were definitely very much part of my growing up and reading fiction. And as I said, it was also a way of, uh, uh, you know, just entering other worlds and other lives and standing in the shoes of other people. And then once you are able to do that, and the great classics have three things that are always uh, apparent. One, the themes are grand. And the language is really noble. But most importantly, the message is startlingly fresh for all times. And so when you read these classics and you are, uh, you suddenly meet, uh, uh, let's say, Gatsby, the question is not that he's an adulterer or is running after Daisy, but the question becomes how complicated life really is. And you can't view the world in a Manichaean good and evil, simple black and white anymore. Everything becomes far more complex. Simple choices become complex. Reading the Greeks, I mean, you read you read the Oresteia and you realize Agamemnon didn't have to sacrifice Iphigenia because he wanted the winds to carry the ships. Um, he had a choice. Uh, Clytemnestra did not have to kill Agamemnon for killing their daughter because she had a choice in the end. Orestes didn't have to kill his mother to avenge his father. He had a choice. So. There is individual responsibility. And even when the gods are telling you to take revenge because your father has been killed, you must kill your mother. You don't listen to God. You have a choice. And constantly in real life, Stanley, we are meeting these dramas of decision-making. Because everything requires a choice has to be made. And it's so much easier to hand over that decision to a higher power or to someone else usually, so that we don't have to make the choice. And usually if, the, if a group decides there is more comfort and more reassurance in numbers, so you don't have to take individual responsibility. And reading fiction and especially reading poetry kind of uh, unraveled all these things for me. You know, because you see whole lives evolve in a book, whole generations evolve, whereas you are living your own life at one, uh, one thing at a time. And then poetry became very important to me, Stanley, because you have very limited choice of words. In 25 words or less, you have to communicate a very profound message. But then it's very much like two lines of a couplet are equal to the double strands of DNA for me. Both are symbolic in a way. They, have, they are microcosms, but they contain macrocosmic information, the kind of messages that they deliver. And so the ability, for example, look at what Emily Dickinson is saying here. 
faith is a fine invention when gentlemen can see. So first look at her attack on faith. Faith is a fine invention when gentlemen can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. <laughs> when there's a plague, listen to the scientists. <laughs> you know, I mean, in just literally a couple of lines, this woman has imparted a profundity. Mm -hmm. And the more you think about it, the more uh, impressed you are. Or surgeons must be very careful when they test their knife. Surgeons must be very careful when they test the knife for underneath their fine incisions rests the culprit, life. You see what I mean? How Now you can think about this for the next 24 hours. <laughs> so many interpretations and so many... It's in, it, in it kind of... Um, it forces you to think in more complicated ways. So the reason I used so many literary references because this is the way I live. This is the way I think. I'm constantly reading books. I'm reading fiction and non-fiction whatever, three to four books a week I read. And, uh, you know, for example, what did I just finish? The history of the atomic bomb, which is like a 900-pager uh, by Richard Rhodes. Yeah. It's a grand book, my God. It has history in it. It has emotions in it. It has so much physics and science. But then it has autobiographies uh, of so many great Oppenheimer to... Fermi to, you know, Rutherford, all kinds of great scientists. And you learn all these details about them. And then right after that, I just finished reading this beautiful book by Suleika Jawad called Between Two Kingdoms. I mm -hmm. think it should get the Pulitzer Prize this year. This woman who is uh, in her 20s, 22, gets acute myeloid leukemia, the disease I treat. And what she has written in this book is so deeply moving, I can't begin to tell you. So here I went from that to reading um, the, this thing about two kingdoms. And then at the same time, I just read uh, Dalloway, Mrs. Dalloway. By <laughs> we read it for the 18th time because one of my favorite books. Uh, and I read it every few years. So fiction, nonfiction, history, whatever comes my way. This is how I live. And because I'm a runner, I recite poetry and commit to memory new poetry all the time. So I'm reciting poetry. I'm reading fiction. So when I'm writing, um, these things come naturally to me. Why? Because we are trying to express human emotion, human suffering, human experiences. And so um, it can't be that I just uh, compartmentalize my brain suddenly to become a scientist or an oncologist or a mother or a widow of a cancer widow, any any of those things. It's everything comes out together. Sorry, it's such a long winded answer. No, no, it's perfect. But uh, how would you say that, uh, how would you say fiction and reading in general sh has shaped and continues to shape what you do on a day to day basis? Well, first, it allows us to poach on the experience of others and learn from it constantly. Second, it gives me insights into myself. I learn about myself by reading fiction because, you know, Stanley, as soon as you are reading a book, 
you like this character, you don't like this character, and why? Then you start, you know, thinking, well, why did I react this way to uh, to so-and-so? And so it you, you get to know more about yourself through reading books. But I think most importantly, the empathy part comes, the compassion, because now you can stand in the place of others and, and see what that experience would be like. You can enter new worlds of individuals that you have never met just by opening a book and learning so much from it. So, I mean, it's not as if there is a kind of um, deliberate tuition or education going on. But I'm saying that by reading all this and imbibing at different times, it almost become intuitively instinctive for you to think in, in broader, more complex terms. Um, and I think fiction is the most important thing that gets me there. One of my pet peeves is not enough men read fiction. They rather read nonfiction, history, biographies. They think fiction is for sissies and for girls. It's lowbrow. Um, I, I used to have this, uh, this uh, problem with my husband. I would fight with him about it. He loved science fiction, but that's not the same as fiction because science fiction is, again, taking you into the realm of unreality. Mm -hmm. I, th I think uh, <laughs> to that point, when I was younger, uh, for reference, I'm 23 now, but w when I was, I don't know, 11, 12, my dad would always try to convince me you know read hugo read all these you know russian classics because that's what they i mean not russian classics but classics that they had in the soviet union and accessible so that was his way of getting uh to see other worlds you know outside of his current environment and i was always uh, kind of dismissive about it i was like ah you know i'll read it eventually and i think you get to a certain part i mean i'm going to speak for myself I got to a point where at 2021, 20, I felt like I couldn't read fiction anymore. I was like, I, I always wanted to keep learning something new. And for me, the only way to learn something new was either listen to a bunch of podcasts or and read nonfiction books about different topics and learn a lot about a lot of things, you know? So uh, I've been trying to get myself to read more fiction. Um, for now, I'm, I'm losing that battle with myself, but <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully, I'll uh, I'll pick up on it soon. How about but, four, one? Read four books of nonfiction and at least one of fiction. Then that's actually a good rule. I'm a I'm a rule I'm a rule guy, so that, that's okay. a good rule to follow. Um, you just described that you know by reading fiction, you you you've learned not just learned, but you've developed empathy for your patients and. I think that's that's something so clear to see in your book. You you almost pour like there's there's almost raw emotion in every chapter that you tell about you know Omar or JC, uh, obviously your late husband. Um, so and it just pops off the page. So, but how do you balance the feeling of uh, personal emotions with trying not to get too invested, right? Like we hear that a lot, that doctors shouldn't get too invested into their patients. How do you handle that? Because you obviously in your book describe a few situations where you you felt physically ill at seeing certain things happen. I think it was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Omar where he 
towards like his last few days, he, he was, you know, the life was kind of sucked out of him and you walked out of his house and you just felt physically ill. So how do you balance that um, with your patients? You see, Ed, uh, this is a very interesting dichotomy in medicine also, because on the one hand, we are told not to get too close to patients because it would uh, involve emotions and emotions cloud judgment. And so we wouldn't be able to make impassioned uh, decisions for them. But on the other hand, constantly patients demand empathy and they will walk away from uh, a doctor who's absolutely brilliant, but unless the doctor is uh, expressing some level of understanding of their, you know, uh, agony and pain and suffering. So how do you balance these two things then? Because medical school is teaching you one thing, patients are demanding another thing. It, uh, it came to me when I was watching this uh, series on TV called The Crown. Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, I have. You know, there is one episode, uh, Stanley, I don't know if you remember it or not, but where uh, Queen Elizabeth, who has been brought up to be a monarch and, a, and royalty, which she is since she's a teenager, and not to mix with the commoners and not to show emotions ever. But then there's an avalanche of some sort and lots of children get killed in a village. And she knows that if she goes there, she won't be able to hold back her tears or so show some emotions in public. So she elects not to go. And then the whole country comes slamming down on her saying, what a cold fish. How could she not come when even to show empathy? And she was forced to go then and, you know, keep a stiff upper lip somehow. So that uh, again, the same thing. On the one hand, she's not supposed to be a commoner and not show emotions. On the other hand, if she doesn't show it, she gets uh, um, really incriminated for it almost. So it's a difficult thing for most people. For me, it was never a problem. Why? Because it's very natural for me. Maybe it's because I come from the East where we don't make such a distinction between Athens and Jerusalem reason and passion mm -hmm. you know in 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 the west you, they tend to have like there is no overlap between the two and for us growing up in the east maybe it is too much on the passion side and much less on the reason side but at least there is a seamless kind of flow between the two we understand that most of our reasoning in fact is driven by emotions and passion and it's very important to have emotional co coefficient as developed as an intelligence uh, coefficient. So how do I balance it is very simple, which is I open myself completely to my patients and I'm ready to walk the walk with them. And it's not all, even for people who are dying, Stanley, the walk is not a continuous, tortuous, uh, painful journey. There are so many beautiful moments that bring ultimate gratification. Um, you know, just acts of uh, endurance. You see them and you are so moved by them. Or there are good news interspersed with the bad news. So when the good news comes, how we celebrate, how happy we feel especially when there is no, there's a hopeless end. 
and you don't have a goal to look forward to. Normally, hope is the subject of all your actions because you're hopeful about tomorrow or doing this. That's mm -hmm. how why you're doing things. But if hope is taken away, something else has to become the subject of your action. And what that something else is? The moment. This moment becomes very important because you can't make long-range plans. And so for the patients and me, the moment becomes very important. And that engagement, those conversations, those deep, profound, meaningful discussions about life, how they have lived their life, what were their aims and aspirations when they were young, where are they now, how do they look at it? These are such beautiful journeys. So it isn't like it's all bad news or it's all, unless there's a cure at the end, there is no gratification. So my answer to you is, I say to everybody, open yourselves as much as you can. Don't hold back. Don't be scared. Be there for your patients. Let them open up then. And you too will have a, uh, an experience that uh, is so unique. I mean, there are many professions in the world, but no profession can bring two people so intimately together as questions of life and death. Yeah. And the way we are with our patients. So I feel totally privileged. I feel no confusion. I feel uh, great gratification and great, uh, greatly humbled by my experiences. Yeah, I think I think uh, traditionally, even in books about like leadership, for example, uh, I think famous historian Dor Doris Kearns Goodwin, in her most recent book, she she outlined the importance for leaders to have empathy, and that's a almost an essential quality when it comes to a, uh, whether it be a thought leader or just, you know, a politician, doctor, uh, but she talks about presidents and stuff like that. But um, I think it's so important and, and it never fails to fascinate me that when you look on television, for example, and you, you see TV reporters or journalists report a story and have this, outpouring of emotion and i always think well aren't you not supposed to show emotion that's 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 how you were kind of brought up as a reporter you have to report the news and not and not feel right you're supposed to be detached but there's always this outpouring of support for people that show that kind of emotion so it's kind of a weird contradiction in society that you know we're supposed to have a show empathy almost not too much empathy. But then when you show empathy, it, everything is all right. People support you because they understand when you're talking about, you know, a school shooting or you're talking about um, an earthquake that killed, you know, a hundred people or something like that. It's painful and people almost feel that emotion. Um, and I think that's, again, it comes through in your book. But um, the most, for me, the most, the most, I'm going to say painful because it's personal, but painful uh, parts of the book to read were the chapters about uh, Omar, Andrew, and your husband, um, Harvey. And what did you, why did you choose to highlight those stories in particular, not some other stories? And uh, what did you learn along the way? 
Um, you know, uh, as you say, I had been treating cancer for a couple of decades, but even I didn't realize how painful a disease it can be until I shared a bed with a cancer patient. When cancer entered my own family and Harvey, my husband got it, it was uh, somehow uh, a disorienting experience at the same time, a clarifying experience at many levels. And that was one of the, uh, one of the moments that uh, clarified things for me and reassured me that I had always been right all along was when Harvey was given his diagnosis of cancer, uh, he was my mentor also, and he had always taught me not to get my emotions involved with patients. But when he gets his own diagnosis of cancer, he turns to me and says, as you're going to take care of me. I said, what? <laughs> I mean, you have taught me never to take care of someone when emotions are involved. He said, no, no, I only trust your judgment. That's it. So I realized that it was the right thing that I had, uh, you know, always gotten my emotions involved with my patients. And maybe that is, um, has made me a better doctor than I would be if I didn't get involved with them. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't intend to tell Harvey's story at all. But then when I started writing about these other patients, I realized that I am recounting with such granularity the details of their lives and their suffering and holding back my own story. That seemed insincere or somehow dishonest to me. So I decided, okay, then I'll write about Harvey as well. Once that decision was made, every chapter, he runs like a red line through everything throughout the book now, because everywhere my personal experience with him kept coming up. Now, besides that, I wanted to highlight the tragedies of cancer by, uh, by focusing on some stories that show or that lift the blinders from the eyes of cancer researchers and oncologists by showing how spectacularly we are failing. So if I show the terrible failure in somebody who's 85, it's not going to have the same effect as someone who's 22 who's diagnosed. Andrew is diagnosed at 22. And how dare we tell his mother that he can live three months longer if he takes this medication? What is three months to a 22-year-old? Two years can mean something to an 85-year-old, but two years don't mean anything to Umar who's 38 who's ready to get married. And those two years to be spent in constantly getting uh, pieces of his body sliced off and taking poisons and uh, being burnt by radiation. So I had to make certain choices. Uh, yes, but on the other hand was also the personal component in these because these are uh, people who were close to me. So it's not just treating a patient. For example, JC was one of the first people I really got close to when I was in my early 30s. And she was in her early 30s and we became best friends. And so, you know, it had it made me um, change my whole 
trajectory of my career changed because of that experience with JC. With Umar, he's my best friend's son. With Andrew, he's my daughter's best friend. With Harvey, he's my husband. Uh, with Per Bach and uh, Lady N and Kitty C, these are complete strangers to me, but um, emotionally very, uh, they each uh, affected me in ways that I had to write about. Because uh, uh, here's Lady N, for example, who is absolutely refusing to accept that anything is wrong with her, that uh, her mortality is staring her in the face and she keeps scoffing it away. Or Kitty C, who has a beautiful, um, grave acceptance with great wisdom. So all these different uh, experiences highlighted by uh, personalities of patients, what they experience, what their families experience. And then remember, a major part of the book is going back to the families and asking them years later, now that you have all this time to think about it, cast a backward glance and tell me what you wish you had done differently. And so the families write about it. So part of it was also because of the families who were involved. Mm -hmm. um, I can write about another hundred patients, literally with the same level of detail, at least another hundred. Because you can imagine an old hack that I am, I've seen thousands of patients and followed many of them for decades. There are so many stories to tell and I hope I'll continue to tell them but these appeared to each make a very specific point. I hope you others read the book and realize what those points are. Yeah, and, and um, obviously, as you just mentioned, the fact that when treating Omar or Andrew, who not, are not, you know, 90 years old, uh, they, they, their life is not, you know, they, they don't have grandkids and all that stuff. And, um, they seem to only be starting with life. And the fact that all of a sudden this diagnosis cuts it short and they have to face uh, their mortality. Um, what, what really impressed me is the, the way they both faced it. It's, it's incredibly, I'm going to say stoic, but also with humor and and um, it didn't, they didn't let the disease take over their life. And that, that must be incredibly hard considering the fact that um, they probably knew that the end um, was going to come sooner or later, right? Uh, but you discuss that the traditional way of treating the disease, you know, to slash cut burn, um, developing pills, the staggering statistic that the, the, the moment of anger came when I didn't know that 95% of new drug, cancer drugs being developed uh, didn't work. And then the 5% might as well not work because it only prolongs life for a couple of months. And it's not even a, a high quality of life. It's, you know, it's the same thing where you have to go through the rounds of chemo and, 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 whatnot. So what do you, in the book, what do you advocate to replace th these methods and um, why should we, and should we completely abandon 
the traditional uh, strategy? Very good question. Uh, the very short answer for that is that, look, the there has been a 1% decrease in death from cancer in the last 30 years. So that means 27% decline in mortality. But number one, that decline in mortality has now brought us to the same cancer death rate as we had in 1930. So that's how bad it is. But that 1% decline has occurred mainly because of anti-smoking campaigns and earlier detection by mammograms, colonoscopy, pap smears, and PSA levels for prostate cancer. Those are the four things that have brought down cancer mortality along with anti-smoking campaigns. So I'm saying that, look, cancer doesn't kill, it's the delay in treatment that kills. So why don't we find it early? How early, as I said, stage one is not early enough. We need to go even before that, find the first cell. And to, so I'm saying that the natural evolution of all these screening technologies, the natural evolution is more sophisticated technologies that can go earlier and earlier and detect the first cell. And then we can prevent it from becoming the, uh, you know, horrendous cancer that it becomes. And when you say, then do we have to give up all? Yes. I mean, when we have, a, a, for example, if women have a bra that is fitted up with 200 micro sensors that can detect the patterns of heat and tension and blood flow, et cetera, they just have to wear that for two hours a week and it can detect the earliest possible oh. cancer, then why would they do mammograms once a year? My plea is very simple. Look, let us develop the technology to diagnose cancer earlier than we are doing now. Let us start treating the human body as a machine and continuously monitor it. And not by just doing one mammogram a year or one colonoscopy every five years, you're gonna miss 90% of the cancers that way. We need to monitor continuously by scanning imaging devices, but also by using, for example, blood as a window into disease. Blood has thousands of analytes and metabolites that are shed. We have signatures of normal metabolites. We can detect the footprints of uh, diseases very early by just looking at blood. So very soon what I'm predicting is that all of us will have individual data clouds of billions of points that are constantly being measured by scanning devices like Fitbits and little band-aids we wear to give the information from deeper tissues about inflammation, infection, autoimmunity, etc. And it's constantly being collected in a cloud over our heads and then being monitored by um, artificial intelligence and machine learning devices to pick up patterns that are associated with disease rather than health and warn us that, okay, today there's something happening in the pancreas that needs to be followed or tomorrow the liver is not working well. And then uh, if it returns to normal, great. If it doesn't, if it keeps getting worse. So in other words, very soon, very soon, within the next decade, I'm predicting a complete 180 degree turn from reactive to proactive, from treating disease to preventing disease, not just cancer. What diseases have we really cured? 
hypertension, diabetes, strokes, what have we cured? Yes, we can fix the heart with stents or do a cardiac transplant, um, but the real uh, change has come in reduced mortality from prevention. Find early, prevent it from causing the heart attack, right? Find high cholesterol early, give anti-cholesterol drugs. Uh, the only diseases we can definitely say we cure are infectious diseases because you get malaria, we can treat you with anti-malarials and cure you. Or you get a bacterial infection, we give you antibiotics and cure you. But even there, Stanley, the real revolution in infectious disease came with vaccination. When we started to prevent all these infectious diseases, I'm saying that the same way we have to prevent cancer from even starting by going early. And it doesn't, doesn't mean we have to give up anything. It simply means that once there is a word processor, no one's going to think about the typewriter. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, but, you know, for, do you see that being tied to um, different? How, so my question is, and this might sound trivial, obviously, but uh, is there a there's obviously a financial incentive in treating um, cancer, not by prevention, but by, um, you know, medicating people, developing new drugs or whatnot. Is that wrong of people? I've heard a lot of people that either you know have experienced have had cancer or or are families of, of family members that had cancer, and that's the way they talk about it because they go obviously nothing will change because there's so much money to be made, and is there a country out there that does it better, or is there uh, obviously you describe a method that we should implement, but is there somebody a different country out there that's actually implementing it and is it working? No. America is the leader of the world and we have greater responsibility because of that. Uh, but it's not, we shouldn't be blaming just drug companies for things like this because look, if you think about it, it takes a drug company more than 10 years and more than $2.5 billion to bring a drug from start to the bedside to approval. Yeah. So if they have spent $2.5 billion and 10 years doing it, they have to make up the money for their shareholders. And that's why they have to tick up the prices. Why have we made things so difficult? And it's not as if those drugs are going to cure. The institutions like FDA and, uh, and NIH who are supposed to protect our rights are not are have abdicated their responsibility in my opinion if they are allowing drug companies to uh, get approval for drugs that improve the survival of 30% patients by 2 months and make a billion dollars a year for the next 20 years it is unfair it has brought the country to the verge of a financial collapse it should not happen so it is a shared responsibility of all of us. And we need to change the system. It's going to break. But what gives me hope is just think about one, one issue, Stanley. It takes me right now six months to a year to get one protocol of experimental trial to treat patients. It takes six months to a year to get it approved at Columbia University right now. 
usually about one year before I can put the first patient on the drug. Do you know how long it took to get uh, the remdesivir trial approved for COVID-19? Nine days. Nine days compared to a year. Why? Because an urgency was felt and everything was rushed through and it isn't like we hurt anybody. But people are not treating cancer as an urgent problem. It is a population-wide problem and it is urgent. If we treat it like that, we will get cancer protocols through within a month and get them treated and not approve them for, uh, for showing such minimal benefits. Right. And um, to, f- to follow up on that, and obviously I, this is not my favorite topic in the book, but um, is there a political effect to, for example, a different administration coming in, is there a way that they divert funds that's different from a different administration? For example, uh, from what I know, like the, the President Biden's son had uh, had cancer and 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 died of it, and there was a point I think towards the last year of Obama's presidency where they declared a war on cancer. That's that I remember that, and they renamed it like the Bo Biden initiative my curiosity lies in the fact is it is it is it is there an obvious kind of policy plan that comes out of it or is it um more words and no action i have to say one thing uh, stanley that what i have noticed in america in the last 43 years is whether it is Republicans or Democrats who are occupying the White House. They understand the importance of uh, R&D, research and development. They really do. No one interferes with the budget of the NCI. In fact, everybody, whether it was George Bush or, I mean, there's there's an occasional outlier who's anti-science period, but even they can't touch the infrastructure of big agencies. Even they can't touch it because everybody uh, in their right mind realizes that sciences and technology is the only way to go forward. And there is no substitute for the rigor of science and there's no substitute for investing in science. It's uh, if you, America thankfully is an affluent enough country that it's willing to invest in a hundred projects out of which they know 90 will fail 10 will be good, but one will shift the paradigm. And so they can afford to throw away money on 99 because they'll be able to shift the paradigm with that one. And everybody, whether Democrat or Republican, realize it. But then there are outliers in the White House, like President Biden right now, who has had such a tragic personal experience. So he's more emotionally involved with cancer. And yes, I went and met with him when he started the cancer moonshot as a vice president after his son died and uh, President Obama uh, approved a billion dollars for the cancer moonshot. Um, And uh, and now that uh, he is President uh, Biden, he has again declared that uh, right after COVID, his next war is going to be to cure cancer. That's what he's going to do. And I am so uh, excited by that. But this is an outlier, of course, because his emotions are involved and he's personally vested in it. 
However, even when emotions are not involved, previous administrations, uh, please know this from me, have not interfered in the science budget. We need to take responsibility for our own failures instead of pointing fingers at politicians and government. They have given plenty of money. There is no dearth of money in this country. We have to stop wasting it. Mm -hmm. So more to the point of maybe an effective cancer treatment, can you talk about your work uh, with the tissue repository? So I, 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 you tell the story in your book that you decided to start this when after JC, right? That, that was, that was uh, what pushed you kind of over the edge. Can you explain to in lay terms to myself? Uh, obviously, I, I, I read about it. I, I understood it, but it was, you know, explain it for me and, and for everyone that's listening. And why is it important? Yeah, thank you so much for asking that question. Look, it started really uh, because of my uh, deep frustration taking care of a young patient who was my age who was dying of acute leukemia. But her story was very intriguing that she had had, uh, before she developed acute leukemia, her blood counts had fallen and she had this pre-leukemia phase, uh, which then developed to leukemia. So it occurred to me when I lost her that, oh my God, I should have been studying and treating her disease when it was at an earlier stage, because that's when you can cure cancer. It wouldn't have even become acute leukemia. So I decided to commit my life to studying the pre-leukemia, which is called myelodysplastic syndromes mm -hmm. now. But then being an immigrant came handy at this point, because had I gone to school in this country, my next step would have been to make a mouse model of pre-leukemia. But I was an immigrant. I was a naive uh, young uh, researcher. And I thought, well, if I'm going to study this disease, I better save some cells on my patients. And I started banking blood and marrow cells on my patients. Back started in 1984. And today, this tissue bank, this tissue repository has over 60,000 samples from thousands of patients. And not a single cell comes from another physician. I have taken care of every patient, which means every vial in these freezers has a story for me. It means something very poignant. I look at those names and I'm moved to tears by it because the whole thing comes back. The idea is that I followed these patients as they traverse the natural history of their diseases from pre-leukemia to acute leukemia to cure or death. And so I have longitudinally obtained serial samples on thousands of patients. And then all the clinical and uh, pathological and morphologic information that goes with it. So can you imagine how, what a rich source of information this tissue repository is? I keep telling people there are at least three Nobel prizes frozen in my freezers. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea we have is that now that the technology is available and we can handle thousands of patients for whole genome sequencing, transcriptomics, uh, proteomics, metabolomics, you know, um, why don't we go and study these serial samples, trace the disease all the way back to its very origin of pre-leukemia, and then ask the question, why did this individual even get pre-leukemia? What was making them susceptible to this illness? Mm -hmm. And that's where we will find the first cell. So I'm very positive and very confident that we'll be able to do it. And we are actually in the process of doing all of this work. 
I hope you'll have me back next year, Stanley, when you'll be very rich and famous because you're just starting the podcast. <laughs> confident you'll be very huge. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I, if you don't mind, a few more questions and then um, we'll wrap it up. So from you also outline in the book that a lot of patients feel a sense of inadequacy when dealing with doctors because doctors are not truthful. And, uh, well, sorry, not, not all doctors, but some doctors could be truthful and they can't tell people what to expect in a realistic way and give them alternative kind of options as to, instead of, you know, the traditional way of treating cancer. Um, this part of the book made me think of uh, Atul Gawande's uh, had a great book called Being Mortal. And he talked about, never thought I'd find a book about geriatrics and hospice care. Interesting. But he, he discussed the fact that most people never even get that option until they get the first option, which is treatment, right? You're always supposed to treat. How do we change that attitude um, of treat first instead of maybe accommodate patients first? Look, these are very uh, sort of complicated issues. And so much of it depends on individuals. Uh, many doctors may not be uh, great scientists, but their handling of uh, patient-doctor interaction is so superb that it cures half the illness in their patients just by their communication yeah. skills, you know. I think there's no substitute for people constantly being uh, experiencing these kinds of things and learning from every interaction. No two patients are alike, not only their diseases, their personalities, their families, everything is different. So we are constantly being engaged in new experiences. It's not as if I can have one algorithm now and I can just follow it with every patient. So it's an ongoing experience. I'm hoping that before long, uh, we really will be able to minimize some of these very difficult conversations because we won't be facing these uh, kinds of issues. That a lot of this has to do with allowing diseases to become so advanced before they're diagnosed mm -hmm. that we need to have these painful conversations. Yeah, uh, I hope so too. And that's a that's a great hopeful message, you know, going forward. But um. Last question, and it's one I, I kind of want to ask everyone I'm going to have on the show, and that's what are five books on any topic, it could be fiction, nonfiction, anything, that you would recommend people to read? And I'll link them on the bottom of my podcast. Wonderful. Uh, very easy. I know people have difficulty naming them. I don't. <laughs> so <laughs> in science books, I think the history of the atomic bomb is my number one book now. Uh, everyone should read it, whether they're scientists or non-scientists. I think in terms of uh, fiction, I have uh, a few real hot favorites. Uh, amongst uh, uh, European fiction, my favorite is Don Quixote by Cervantes. Uh, the Russians have, uh, my favorite is Brothers Karamazov, mm -hmm. a must read for everybody. I think that chapter on the Grand Inquisitor in the Brother Cam Brothers Karamazov gave birth to political theory, gave birth to so many new things. Um, 
then in terms of uh, of non-fiction, oh, an American fiction, two of my favorite books are Moby Dick by Melville. Again, a fabulous uh, book about life, about, it's the book, Stanley, that taught me the storms and the souls of men that force them to go wailing. You understand those things finally. It's a beautiful book. And my other favorite American author is Toni Morrison, Beloved. Mm-hmm. Beloved is a book that will stand out uh, in time. Um, its message is unbelievable. Its language. I mean, you can't write about tragedies like that in simple English. You, so Toni Morrison has invented a new language to talk about the pain and anguish of a mother who has to kill her own baby rather than see it become a slave. So uh, one thing I'll tell you about this book that affected me very much is a sentence which she says, later in life when she's telling Paul D, her boyfriend, about this experience when she killed the baby, her own baby, because then she can't live you know, a normal life herself after having done that, of course. But 20 years or so have gone by and she's telling her boyfriend Paul D about it and he's so shocked, he says, girl, your love too thick. And she responds, love is neither thick or thin. Love is either is or it ain't. And that has affected me so deeply. I think about it so often. Love is either is or it ain't. It's not thick or thin. Right. You have to love with everything you have. Every sulcus and gyrus in your brain, every fiber in your body. If you are in love with anything, not just another person, but a profession or whatever you profess to love, that's the way it has to be. And that book teaches you about what love is. So I say, beloved, Moby Dick. I say, uh, Cervantes is Don Quixote. I say, the brothers Karamazov. I say, uh, making of the hydrogen bomb, uh, of, of the atomic bomb. But now I will mention two more books. They are, the, they are both called the same. They are both autobiographies. They are written a thousand years apart. And they are both called the Confessions. One by, um, my God, I got so in, uh, so emotionally involved in Beloved that now <laughs> I'm uh, blanking out uh, the names. Anyway, the French uh, revolutionary writer who, who wrote the, con- the social contract. What's his name? Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm-hmm. His book, The Confessions. Uh, and then St. Augustine, who wrote A Thousand Years Before, his autobiography. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confes- Confessions. These two biographies, the confessions, both are called the same, are phenomenal books. So sorry, I named seven of them. Now. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. Again, <laughs> uh, the reason uh, I loved your book, and you could feel the passion that you speak on the topic and about everything. So um, I would highly recommend this book to everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Raza. Thank you, Stanley. Uh, I'm going to end by reciting a short Emily Dickinson for the audience then. This is a beautiful, beautiful short thing. I had no time to hate because the grave would hinder me. And life was not so ample, I could finish enmity. 
nor had I time to love. But since some industry must be, the little toil of love, I thought, was large enough for me. So with Beautiful. love to all of you, especially to you, Stanley. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was an honor.